Our scripture this morning comes from Luke chapter 19. I'm going to read it for us. And this is the story of, it's often called the triumphal entry, um, but it's the story of Jesus entering into Jerusalem. And you'll, you may notice that there are no palm branches in this version of the story. And uh, there, um, but, but in another gospel reading, there are palm branches and there's no hosannas, actually, in this version either, but they are in the other gospel versions. You may find that. Um, but it's, it's interesting how we have four different gospel. We have four different accounts of Jesus' life, and we get a slightly different take from each of them, which is kind of a fuller picture of what really happened um, so long ago. And so this is a really powerful story. I'm going to read it for us, and then we're going to get into it. I'm in Luke chapter 19. I'm going to start at verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, say that the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the coat, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. So like I said, today is Palm Sunday. It's the Sunday that comes right before Easter. Today marks the beginning of Holy Week, which focuses on those final days of Jesus's life. And the story for Palm Sunday is the same every year, but the lectionary that we've been following actually alternates between the different gospel accounts each year, and so you get a little bit different take on it each year. Today we are in Luke. All four Gospels uh, contain this story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This is an important story. For many of us in the room, I imagine this story is fairly well known, um, since it's often read and preached on, and we have the palm branches, and we do the whole thing every single year on Palm Sunday. But I'll tell you that the familiarity of the story can often lead us to miss the powerful and I would say radical meaning behind the text. 
This is way, way more than a fun story about palm branches and hosannas. It is, in fact, political, it is subversive, and it directly challenges our understanding of power and peace. So you all ready to get into it? All right. So one thing right at the beginning. Jesus' actions in this story are very deliberate. We need to know this. They are purposeful. This didn't just happen like this, that he rode into Jerusalem on a colt. Other gospels say a donkey. It didn't just happen this way by chance. That the people were there, that they were praising his name. He was very deliberate and purposeful in the way he planned out this entry into Jerusalem. He gave very specific instructions to his followers about how to execute this plan of entry into the holy city. You know, Luke, we've talked about how he's describing Jesus on this long journey to Jerusalem. That's how he kind of structures his gospel. Well, we're at the point where he has arrived at Jerusalem. It's taken many chapters to get there. And so this is a really big deal. He's finally arrived at his destination that Luke is building toward. And Jesus is very intentional. He is very deliberate and purposeful in the way he enters the city. He could have entered quietly, you know, just kind of gone into the city, hopefully not seen by anyone. That would have been the safest option for Jesus. Could have prolonged his arrest. But instead, he entered the city in a very public and politically charged manner. In our text for today, the setting of the story matters just as much as the text itself. When and where this all happened really, really matters. So in order to understand the, the impact and the importance of Jesus' actions, we need to understand a little bit about what was going on in Jerusalem during that particular week. Jesus entered Jerusalem during the Passover week. During this time, pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims from all across Palestine traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate this really important Jewish holiday. And you need to know that Passover week was a particularly and especially volatile week in Jerusalem. Why was it so volatile? Why was there unrest? Why was it stressful in Jerusalem during this week? Well, think about what the Passover means. Do y'all know what they celebrate during the Passover? The Passover is a celebration of that time when the Israelites were set free from slavery in Egypt. It is a time to remember and honor that decisive moment when God acted on behalf of the oppressed Israelites and he set them free. It recalls all the memories of the Exodus experience. It, it recalls leaving Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, their time in the wilderness, the giving of the law, and their eventual settlement in the promised land. And you may not pick up on this, but these are like revolutionary stories of freedom and liberation from a powerful and oppressive empire. These stories of the Exodus and God setting the Israelites free were so powerful that back during the height of slavery in America, slaveholders would actually often cut out these stories out of Scripture, and they would give those Bibles to their enslaved people because they didn't want them reading about freedom. They didn't want to read about God setting people free from slavery. 
the Jews living under Roman occupation would certainly uh, resonate with this story of Exodus because they were also living under the, the power and the oppressive empire. So just like slaveholders in America, the Roman Empire was not a fan of the Exodus story and they were not a fan of the Jews gathering every year to celebrate Passover. Because what would happen during that week, stirrings of uprising and revolution would be prevalent all throughout Jerusalem because they're all gathered for this deeply spiritual purpose, remembering when they were once set free. And so the Romans uh, would have been very paranoid about this particular week. The Romans had a great distrust for large gatherings of like-minded people. Uh, Most people in power have a lot of distrust for those types of gatherings even today, right? For example, in his letter to Pliny the Younger, Younger, the emperor Trajan, who came shortly after the time of Jesus, but in the same sentiment, he wrote, when people gather together for a common purpose... Whatever name we may give them, when whatever function we may assign them, they soon become political groups. He's essentially saying if people have enough time to organize and gather, they will soon turn against you. And the emperor was not a fan of those kinds of things happening. And so during Passover, there would have been a heightened level of security in Jerusalem. Armed forces would have been stationed all throughout the city to show who was in charge and warn of violent consequences to any upheaval. I'll show you a photo from modern day times here in America, but these are troops that are stationed in front of the Lincoln Memorial during a time of protest in Washington, D.C. after some of the the racial injustice that came to the public eye just a few years ago. A show of force, right? Communicating, don't get out of line because we are powerful and we can even be violent if necessary. There were likely informants monitoring the actions of the Jews who were on pilgrimage in Jerusalem on that particular holiday. This week concerned the Romans to such a degree that the governor Pilate, who had this kind of cushy palace up on the sea in Caesarea, he left his home up by the sea and he would travel to Jerusalem during the week of Passover to make sure that he could keep an eye on all the Jews who were there that particular week. And so Pilate would come to keep an eye on them, and he would enter the city from the west, riding on a chariot pulled by war horses. He would be surrounded by a great parade of Roman soldiers and generals showcasing their power and their military might. There would likely be chants declaring the power and peace of Rome and hailing the emperor as Lord and King. Now knowing this context helps me understand how radical Jesus' entry into Jerusalem that week truly was. Around the same time as Pilate was entering the city from the west, there was another march taking place from the east. Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on a colt or a donkey surrounded by a marching crowd of ragtag country folk and poor people, chanting, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, it doesn't take much imagination to see how dangerous of a public action that would be for Jesus and his followers. 
If Pilate or any of the Roman authorities got word about this other march taking place, declaring another king, when they're already paranoid to begin with, it could mean trouble for Jesus and His people. Some Pharisees were there that day, and it says some of them, not all of them, but some of them who were there, they saw what was taking place and they knew how dangerous this was. They were connected to the power there in Jerusalem and they knew this action of Jesus, this riding into Jerusalem in this way, would be a very dangerous thing. And so they pleaded with Jesus. They said, rebuke your disciples, please. Basically saying, tell them to shut up and stop chanting that you're the king. Because if anybody, any of the informants are here, if anyone hears about this, we could be in big trouble. Not just you, but all your followers and us as well. And so Jesus uh, refused to rebuke the crowd of followers. And he, he said, you know, if I tell them to stop chanting, the rocks are going to cry out for me. <laughs> and he let them continue to praise and to shout their songs of praise. And I think Jesus let them continue on for one reason, because I think Jesus wanted people to see the contrast of what was happening on that day. The contrast between his march and Pilate's march. They needed to see what true kingship and true power looked like. In this action, Jesus publicly rebuked the ways of empire, the methods of violence and control and domination. Guy Jared McKenna, uh, Dustin pointed out to me this week, was essentially um, saying, he argues that Jesus was essentially mocking the Roman Empire by riding in on, you could say, a trike instead of a tank, right? Showing that, that man, like, y'all don't get it. These public demonstrations like this, even today, can often jar people, right? Provoke them to see things differently and possibly even spur people to action. And so as Jesus approached Jerusalem, he looked over the city. I'll show you a photo of a picture that I took when I was in the Holy Land. And this is on the Mount of Olives in a road that's leading down to the Kidron Valley. And then you'll go up again into the city, the old city of Jerusalem. And this is where Jesus would have been walking down, seeing the city in the distance. Like he did earlier in Luke's Gospel, he lamented over Jerusalem once again. And he said, even if you, even you, had only known in this day what would bring you peace. He said, if you had only known what would bring you peace. He says, but now it's hidden. You can't see it. It's hidden from your eyes. This lament of if you had only known what would bring you peace reverberates today, echoing out through all generations and places and moments in history. I hear Jesus' lament over Ukraine and Russia I hear Jesus' lament over abusive homes. I hear Jesus' lament over oppressive church environments obsessed with power and popularity. I hear Jesus' lament over Frankfurt and the recently ended legislative session. I hear Jesus' lament over the Pentagon, over our city council, over gentrifying urban communities. If you had only known on this day what would bring you peace. Rome is known in history. If you go back to history class, uh, we got a history teacher in the room. Uh, she can tell us a little bit about this probably. But if you go back in history class, um, you may remember this term Pax Romana that you learned about the Roman Empire. But it basically means the peace of Rome. 
And Rome is known throughout history of bringing a unique type of peace into the world. They built these roads and had a system of government and all these different things that brought some relative type of peace to the world. And Rome's version of peace, I think, really has endured to this day. And it is a peace of one kind, but it is not biblical peace. It is a peace without justice, and it is a peace that is a far cry from the peace of Scripture. This so-called peace of Rome was achieved mainly through military conquest and control. Through military operations, Rome would go throughout the land and conquer and subdue foreign nations in order to enable harmony and tranquility back at home. Even in their own empire, uh, they would oppress many people. For instance, the Jews who were living in that area of ancient Palestine, they would oppress people even in their empire so that they could feel at peace. Destruction of enemies meant that they were free from threat and could rest easy. Those living in the city of Rome and maybe other places of power felt at peace because all the violence and poverty and struggles were pushed out to the margins of the empire. Their peace was achieved through control and oppression of people at the margins. In the center, everyone was happy. Life was good, right? But out there, uh, they didn't realize how messed up things were. What was happening in places like Jerusalem and Bethlehem and in Galilee. You know, I delivered pizza when I was in college in West Palm Beach, Florida for a few years. And if y'all have ever been to West Palm, you know, you got West Palm, the city. It's right on the intercoastal waterway. You cross the bridge, you go to Palm Beach Island, which that's got some of the most wealthy people and places in our entire world, right? And, and on Palm Beach Island, you had mansions, you had gated communities. The streets were clean. People were beautiful. There was wealth. There was nice food. There were beaches. All was good on Palm Beach Island. We would go over there just feeling like life was good, right? Certainly those people feel some peace on Palm Beach Island. But then just five blocks on the other side, uh, delivering pizza, you can actually do it by the number of the house. You knew if the community was going to be a community of great wealth or if it was going to be a community affected by the just um, consequences and the, just the terrible effects of poverty. Just five blocks on the other side of the intercoastal, you had some of the most poorest and, and neighborhoods plagued with violence in our entire nation. Even on Palm Beach Island, I discovered as I delivered pizza, you would have these beautiful buildings I would deliver pizza to. On the outside, they looked like mansions, and you would go inside, and they were ratty, dingy dorms for all the workers who were working for the people on the island. And they had shared bathrooms. It looked like a bad college dorm, right? And, and it had the appearance, right, uh, of being wonderful. It was, they were hiding them in a way from some of these folks on the island to keep that image of peace. I read a story a few weeks ago. We'll bring this a little closer to home. About the crime problem uh, in downtown Lexington. It was on a one of our news stations, and, and much of this story about the crime in downtown was focused, as you dug into it, it was most of the complaints were about people who didn't have homes, who were sleeping downtown and gathering near a lot of downtown businesses, and the owners of these businesses were not happy about these folks, you know, hanging around their place of, or place of business. And the proposed solution was to hire more police, to patrol and control the area. And this type of thing has happened in many cities all across our, our country. 
As more wealth comes into urban communities, the police presence is ramped up, and the poor are often forced out so that more wealthy people can feel at peace while dining or seeing a show or going for a walk. Yet the issue with this kind of approach to address these kinds of issues is it doesn't do anything to address the underlying issues of homelessness, of drug addiction, of broken families, or lack of opportunities for youth. That's a worldly idea of peace, that we achieve it through control, through pushing people away, and having this false image that everything is okay. And it's often achieved through control and through the threat of violence. Biblical peace is nothing like that. It's way better, actually. The Hebrew word for peace in the Old Testament is a word called shalom. And shalom is like my favorite word in all the Bible. Either that or there's another word, hesed, that I really like. They're, they're like they go hand in hand, actually. Um, but shalom is this beautiful word that, that is translated as peace. But often what you'll find, Hebrew words have a lot of layers of meaning to them. It means peace, but it also means justice. It means righteousness. It means wholeness. To have shalom means that you have a healthy and you have a whole society. You have whole people. Yes, we have peace in our lives, but we also have whole communities. Whole implies all. Shalom means that everybody is taken care of, that no one is left behind, that everyone is, has what they need and nobody is left without. This is the type of peace that Jesus is offering if only people could follow His way. And this is way better than the peace of the world, right? Our solution sometimes to our issues that we face lacks so much imagination. And the Bible provides a way for us to really imagine what a better world could look like, what a better community, what a better city, what a better church could look like. Shalom means that people have access to basic needs like health care and food and housing and legal protection. Shalom means that less powerful groups are protected, that widows are taken care of, that vulnerable children are looked after. Shalom means that people love God with their whole hearts and seek to love others the way God loves them. Shalom means that war isn't necessary because people from diverse places and backgrounds actually can live in harmony together. Shalom means that just policies, right, that consider all the people, not just some. Shalom means that there is no need for gated communities because we aren't afraid of our neighbors. Shalom is a Hebrew word uh, given to us in the Old Testament, but I think the New Testament version of peace in some sense, it's taken even further because to achieve peace in the New Testament is to model our lives after Jesus who called us to self-sacrifice, to giving of ourselves for others and love, and He even calls us to love our enemies. You know, worldly peace celebrates the destruction of enemies for the purpose of control and security and more power and wealth. However, biblical peace reconciles former enemies through Christ killing the hostility between people. Worldly peace seeks to destroy enemies, while biblical peace turns enemies into friends. Let me show you a photo that I've showed here before a few years ago, but to me it just clearly shows the difference between these two types of peace. This is a missile that has the name the Peacekeeper. This peacekeeping missile had the capacity to carry multiple nuclear warheads and could travel thousands of miles. 
It had the ability to strike a target with incredible accuracy and decimate entire cities. This missile could destroy an enemy, any enemy in its path. The peace that this missile brings is not biblical peace. It is a peace that seeks control and security through more death and destruction. Regardless of your beliefs about war, whether you think war is ever necessary, can we all agree that this missile does not promote shalom, <laughs> right? Wholeness, righteousness, just, justice, love. Can we agree that this missile does not spread the peace of Christ that turns enemies into friends through self-sacrificial love? The biblical concept of shalom has transformed the way I think about peace. Peace is not the absence of conflict as we often think, but peace really is the presence of justice. Peace is not achieved through control, domination, or violence. Peace is achieved through self-sacrificial love and care and concern and through working for the common good. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers. I'll just say briefly that peacemaking, I don't think, is the same as peacekeeping. <laughs> Keeping the peace is often focused on not rocking the boat. It's focused on order and security. But peacemaking is active. It's gritty. It's about pursuing things that God is about. It is about actively seeking the wholeness of people, of communities, of relationships. And these are things we're trying to do at our church. Sally's trying to do in Costa Rica. These are things that we are committed to here at our church. I want to close by just reading this prayer of St. Francis. And maybe we could say this together, actually, if you don't mind. Make sure it's back there. We got it, Steve? There we go. Um, we'll read it slow, but this is a beautiful prayer, and there's going to be two different slides for it. Then we're going to sing a song that reflects on this at the end of the service. But this is about taking a message like this and really bringing it closer to home. How can we bring the, the shalom, this peace that God seeks to bring into our world? How can we as individuals be, as a community, be instruments of peace in our world today? That song we sang, Your Peace Will Make Us One, is kind of reimagining the battle hymn of the Republic and taking a song that's using these images of, of, of weapons and of war and of uh, military images and violent images and kind of reimagining that song with images of peace and, and, and wholeness, images of, of mothering and of gardening and bringing new life instead of destruction. And I think we need to reimagine how we think about peace and, and what our role here as, as people is to, to bring more of God's shalom into our families, into our communities, into our friend groups and all across our world. So let's say this together. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O oh, Divine Master, Grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.